Amen. Thanks, Barry. Um, we are, my name is Jonathan, by the way, uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And we are approaching the finish line of the book of Matthew. Uh, last week, we, as you're aware, on uh, Easter, hit the, the climax, really, of the whole story and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. <clears throat> uh, we looked at what happened in that passage as a, as a kind of a, a, a micro picture of what it is to happen in our own lives. That is, to come and see him, and as we come to see him, we then go and tell. So there, there's a connection between last week and this week, a uh, very crucial connection, in that uh, we're, we're going to see Jesus say kind of the same thing to the disciples in the couple of verses that we're reading here at the end of the book of Matthew. But today we begin kind of uh, begin a, a final mini-series called The Second Coming of Jesus. And you should have received a worship folder, and in the little insert uh, on one side is the passage, uh, which you notice is relatively short. Uh, series should say uh, the, the Second Coming of Jesus, and on the back is the outline. Uh, but as we, as we move into this final series, we're basically going to take the month of May, look at the Great Commission today, and then... In the following weeks, look at some of Jesus' teaching back in chapters 24 and 25 about the second coming. Uh, And Drew has the uh, privilege uh, or challenge, some might say, uh, to work through that for us in the coming weeks. But for now, we're just going to be taking a look at Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. These are verses that I'm sure... Many of you, if you've been around the church for any length of time, or even if you haven't, you've heard these verses before, uh, maybe multiple times. Uh, And the danger is, as the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, Not so much contempt, I'm thinking, in this case, as just complacency. We get used to hearing about this. Oh, I know the Great Commission. It means, or we may even be able to recite the verses. Uh, But in terms of making this a real part of our lives, and also being prayerful about where our place in this comes. Where's God calling us? What's he calling us to do? Uh, I think we need to wrestle through that, uh, both as a congregation, as Barry alluded to just a minute ago, but also individually. So it's a short passage. There's just a few verses to look at. I'm really going to be honing in on 18, 19, and 20. Uh, so we're, we're going to go into some dissection, really, about the bits and pieces of what Jesus is saying here. Let me read to you first from uh, Matthew 28, verse 16, through the end of the chapter, also the end of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always uh, to the end of the age. This is God's word. I want to take you all the way back, since we're in Matthew 28, to chapter 1 of Matthew. Uh, I think the first time we 
uh, got into Matthew was last Christmas. Uh, so we've been in we've been in the book for quite a while, <clears throat> and you're going to see there's a bookend here in chapter 28 with the first couple of chapters of his gospel. Matthew says in chapter one, verse one, the gospel of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in chapter two, the Magi refer to him as the king. They say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? So from the outset of the gospel, Matthew is declaring something about Jesus, even though this is chapter one, it's just his genealogy, just his family line. Even though we haven't read anything about what he's done, we haven't read any of his teaching, we haven't seen him perform miracles. His declaration to us is Jesus Christ is the ultimate Davidic king. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. As if to say to the reader, this is the child of Abraham through which all the nations, all the families of the earth will find blessing. This is him. But I also want to draw your attention back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. Uh, and I, th- I think Rob has this up or can, can get it up there for us. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. One of Jesus' favorite titles for himself is Son of Man. And we've got to get this vision uh, that I'm going to read from Daniel 7 in our minds as we consider the implications of the first words Jesus says in verse 18 to the disciples. So, Uh, This is Daniel's vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Verse 14. And to him was given, that is, to the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is the guy who sang these words to the disciples. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's marvelous. Throughout his whole ministry, Jesus almost used this title as a way to travel incognito, right? Another way to fly under the radar, to, say, to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, but we, as we saw in the last days of his life, particularly in the last even... 24 hours of his life, in his encounter with Pilate, in his encounter with others, he affirmed that he was the king. Not just a king, but the king. In chapter 28, on the other side of the resurrection, Matthew is wanting us to see the same son of man who traveled the countryside with nowhere to lay his head is that guy we just read. He's the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, whose kingdom is one that will not be destroyed, one who has all authority and all glory, and all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. That's Jesus. Now, with that background, Jesus' statement in verse 18, which is kind of the first verse of the what's traditionally known as the Great Commission, forms this bookend with the first two chapters. It's almost like Matthew is saying, just in case you doubted, just in case you forgot what I said in the first couple of chapters of my gospel, my hope is that having seen Jesus crucified, dead, and buried, and risen to new life, you will indeed believe him when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To me. 
It's not as though he hasn't always had this authority, but now that he's risen, he can kind of come full, come, come, uh, well, full disclosure. He can be completely honest and open about who he is now. Everybody knows. And he can say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's a comprehensive, all-encompassing nature to what he's saying. He says, I mean, just follow with me through these three verses. He says, all authority everywhere in heaven and on earth. There is no place where I do not have authority. Go and disciple all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am with you always, all the time, everywhere, any instant. I mean, there is this, it's this full-orbed vision of what he is calling us to and reminding us of in this commission. He's the son of David, the king with all authority. He's the son of Abraham, whose blessing will extend to all the nations, every people group on the earth. And he is, verse 20, Emmanuel. Remember that. We sing it at Christmas in Advent every year. O come, O come, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, right? He's saying, I am Emmanuel. I'm with you. He has universal lordship, and so he demands a universal mission. And I've said this before, but Jesus is after, Jesus' goal is global domination. And I love that. Uh, because I can, I, I, rest assured, if you're somebody like me and you've never been that accomplished at, you know, sports or, or competitions or things, you know, I don't have a lot of first places. I got a lot of honorable mentions. I got a lot of, good job, thanks for playing. Nice try. That kind of stuff. I follow a king who got first place. He is victorious over every entity on earth and heaven, and he is going to conquer the entire earth. Now, how do you know that this statement is true, aside from what I've already said? I mean, how does a sense of his authority come to affect the way you live? It's why the first point is his authority that is to be experienced. I mean, why is this a foundation? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're unsure of whether you're a Christian, let me be clear. We believe it's only through an encounter with God and the person and work of Jesus Christ that his authority will be experienced. It's impossible for you and I to make sense of verses 19 and 20 until the gospel comes home to your heart and overhauls your life. I was talking to someone on the phone this past week, and they, they asked me uh, the, the question, you know, how is the Holy Spirit right now overhauling your life? And I've never, I've never heard of that word used in the context of, of a faith and spiritual journey. And so I decided to steal it, and I'm going to start using it now. Because it really is it's a great picture, isn't it, of your, your life is one way, and now God is overhauling your life. I mean, he's completely turning around everything that you and I have known or thought. And as we've sung, everything I once held dear, I now count as loss. That's why the assurance of pardon was Philippians 3, because Paul, the apostle, got this. The gospel is the good news that Jesus got what we deserve. We've seen it in the last couple of weeks. Death and judgment and the wrath of God, the Father, hell itself, so that we, by faith, 
can receive what only he deserved. That is life and acceptance and the pleasure of God. This was accomplished in Jesus' defeat of sin through the cross and his conquering of death through his resurrection. So, his statement of authority must be the foundation from which he then says his next words. And for you and I, we have to have experienced that. It has to come home to our hearts and melt us and begin to overhaul us. Or verses 19 and 20 will just kind of float off. And their effectiveness, their power, their authority will not go with what he's just said. So what is this command to be obeyed? I think uh, you can look at the outline this way. His authority to be experienced, which is believing. His command to be obeyed, which is going. His promise to be treasured, which is resting. So if, if those are too long for you, just out to the side, right, if you do take notes or something, uh, believing, going, and resting. But what you'll see as you get more into the Bible, or maybe you know this if you've read the Bible cover to cover several times, whenever someone experiences the power and authority of God, whenever they encounter the God who made heaven and earth and they encounter Him in his, the, the, the fullness of His character and the beauty of His work and His glory always produces a life of mission. God never gives a sense of his power and presence to someone without creating in them a sense of being sent out, right? You see this with Abram. He comes to Abram. He says, Abram, go and I'll make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you so that you can then be a blessing. He promises him these things. And he says, go to him. And after he finishes his little speech... The very next verse in Genesis 12 says, So Abram went. Abram obeyed. When Moses is out uh, feeding Jethro's sheep, and he sees this weird bush that's burning up but not consumed, and he goes over to the bush, and the Lord speaks to him in the midst of the burning bush and he says, I've heard the cry of my people and I'm going to come down to rescue them. You're going to be my instrument. And Moses hem haws and complains and I can't, you know, and all these excuses. And God finally says, get on with it. But it's that encounter with the burning bush that creates a sense of mission for him. One of the most beautiful examples of this is Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. It is this awe-inspiring, goes back to the Revelation song we sang uh, at the beginning of worship. It is this incredible vision of God. And a cherubim takes coals from the altar at the throne and touches his lips, and he says, your sins have been atoned for. You are now free, and what happens after that? The voice comes and says, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah's first words are, raise my hand, here I am, send me. Where's the dotted line? I'm ready to sign. And even Jesus, in a sense, when he's baptized in the River Jordan, and the dove comes down, the voice comes down, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, believe him, listen to him, and off Jesus goes. So, as you get into verse 19, 
Having read verse 18, it's clear. The authority of God, the work of God coming into your life must produce a life of mission. It must produce a sense of being sent out. But what's the assumption here? The assumption is not, uh, or the command, I should say, is not specifically go. You can't really see that in your English translation. But go is not a command. It's an assumption. It's almost as if Jesus is saying in verse 19, uh, well, let me start with 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So as you're going from here, that's kind of what he's saying. As you're going from here, do what? Make disciples of all the nations. It's not enough to simply tell them about Jesus. We have not done our job if we have lobbed tracks out of the airplane as we're flying over them, hoping they will pick them up and read them and go, hmm, Jesus. That's not our job. Our job is to make disciples of them. We are told to ensure they follow and submit to Jesus Christ as their master. Now, let me give you a state of the union. All nations here, and most scholars will agree, means, the Greek word that is, means every people group on the earth. So the most most up-to-date information on global evangelization is this. There are right now approximately, approximately, 6.8 billion people in the world. How many of these people have never heard of Jesus? 2.8. Which works out to approximately 40% of the world that hasn't heard of Jesus, much less is his disciple. And in uh, much of the world, there's they, they, they do lots of studies, lots of statistics and whatnot, but they reckon about in Asia, 17% of the people in Asia personally know another Christian. You know how many people in North and South America personally know another Christian? 97. So, where are we at with this? A Canadian missionary named Oswald Smith said, we talk of the second coming all the time. Half of the world hasn't even heard of the first one. (laughs) And I like that statement uh, because it's, well, it's true. So, the command is not just to go, because obviously down the line you figure out, well, to go to make disciples of all the nations, I have to go, right? But Jesus' assumption is that as we were, as his disciples, as his church begins to build and go out, and you see it as you read the book of Acts and read uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century church history even, you begin to see this taking place. All the different nations, people, groups around the New Testament era are learning, are hearing, are being discipled in the way of Jesus. Now, he gives us two activities, two major strategies or activities in order to make this happen, to make disciples of all the nations. First, baptizing them into, literally, if you look at it there, either in your Bible or or on your sheet, it's baptizing them in the name of the Father. It's literally into. Why is that important? Well, Baptism is a sign of initiation or entrance into the covenant community. And it is a sign of pledged submission to the lordship of Jesus. It has the sense of coming out of one reality and stepping into another one. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Galatians 3 verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, there it is, have put on Christ. Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ means a change of clothes. 
you are absorbed into his agenda. Out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus. So, when you get baptized, when you become a disciple and you get baptized, it is an identity change. But not only baptizing them, Jesus says, teaching them to observe or teaching them to obey everything or all that I have commanded you. Now, look closely just a second here. He does not say, teach them to learn, teach them to memorize, teach them to know everything that I've commanded. Right? Because I can know something intellectually, not follow it, not live it out, not obey it, not observe it. Right? The goal of discipleship is obedience. Not duty-bound obedience, not hollow obedience, but the obedience of faith that comes from a heart transformed by the gospel's power. So what Jesus is saying is, his kingship and rule extend over every area of life. And part of his commission to us is making sure that we clearly articulate his demands. They are demands. They are commands. They are not suggestions. Right? I know for many of them, I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak. But nevertheless, I mean, these are his commandments. So we go, we make disciples, we say, Jesus says to do this. Jesus says, stop doing this. Start doing this. The church must teach his followers to take his commandments seriously. To use the military metaphor, he's the commander-in-chief, right? And when the commander-in-chief says, go take that hill, go do this, go do that, what do his soldiers do? They do it. If they don't, well, it's not good. I'm not a military person, so I can't tell you some of the consequences, but I'll bet you they're not good. Given what I know and some of the movies that I've seen, that I'm sure are very accurate. Now... What becomes obvious, then, is that in order to make disciples, I referred to this earlier, but in order to make disciples of all nations, you have to go to all the nations. As I mentioned with the statistics, we have a lot of work to do. But when we face the reality, the obstacles begin to mount. When I start thinking about leaving, what would it look like for me? Am I called to leave? Who's called to leave Winter Haven? Who's called to leave you know, Chicago? Who's called to leave Fayetteville, Arkansas? and plant themselves in the middle of Tehran. Well, that scares the living daylights out of me. I've got to be honest. I mean, I hope it scares you too. It should. Well, of course it scares us. We're all still sitting here, right? We're all here. We're not there. But there's a couple of obstacles that I just want to bring to your attention and ask you to consider, because obviously, as I ask in the outline, why is it hard going to all the nations? Well, because there's a lot of things that uh, it requires that, man, I'm just, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. One of the major obstacles for us is a shallow understanding of the gospel. And what I mean by that is this, uh, a pastor named John Piper, who's a pretty well-known author, some of you may have heard of him, some of you may have not, But he says this, you cannot commend what you don't cherish, right? And until you and I have begun to fully understand and cherish what Jesus Christ did in order to save us, 
which what did he do? He moved, he came down from the lap of luxury, far better living conditions than you and I could possibly imagine. And what did he do? He put on flesh, he moved into the neighborhood. Only the neighborhood he lived in couldn't stand him. You ever lived in one of those kind of neighborhoods? Everybody in the neighborhood can't stand you. John 1, he came to his own, his own didn't receive him, they rejected him, right? So he's walking around in his neighborhood, the nation of Israel. And, and they, they, can't, they can't stand him. He goes through the mockery. He goes through the abuse. He goes through the intense hatred of the people, his very enemies. And he went through it to rescue a people out of it. And until we begin to really kind of take that in, absorb that, make that a part of who we are, then the call to do the very same thing, whether it be in Lakeland, Florida, like the people uh, of Parker Street, whether it be a group that moved into the Sandtown neighborhood in Baltimore uh, 20 years ago to begin a community center and eventually start churches, whatever that looks like, or whether it's going to Iran, or whether it's going to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, wherever it is, uh, we we won't do it because what Jesus has done hasn't completely sunk in yet. But also, I think we are quite comfortable, right? All of us can agree that we struggle to be enslaved to materialism and creature comforts, right? I mean, there's so many of them. I love air conditioning. I love it. Now, I hate hot weather, so I'd kind of rather be where it's cold. But then, I'd hate not having heat. I mean, either way, you, you, you've got me. And the problem is our creature comforts numb us into a sense of apathy at worst where we just don't care or we're really not that concerned or I've got lots of other things to worry about or at best an occasional gift or an occasional prayer or what have you. So how do we overcome this? How do we overcome our fears, our, our refusal many of us, in order to make disciples. And the key is the third point. We have to come to trust. We have to come to treasure the promise that Jesus gives us in the last uh, part of this passage. Why does he close with a promise? Why is it significant that the last words Matthew records of Jesus are a promise? Not a commandment, not an imperative, but a promise, a statement of fact, right? A reminder that he is Emmanuel. Because Jesus is reminding us, we don't work in order to find rest, right? It's from a posture of rest. It's from a knowledge that he's with us that we accomplish our work. And so the command to go and make disciples of all nations is preceded and followed by statements of Jesus' work. That's so important. As we rest in his finished work, His defeat of sin and death, as our hearts come to treasure him more and more, out of that flows a willingness to do anything he asks. We've mentioned this paradigm before, but in the gospel we do nothing, and in doing nothing we gain everything, and out of that flows a what? A willingness to do anything. That is changing my life. I believe it will change all of our lives to the degree that it sinks in 
How do you truly, how do you really know God is for you? Well, he was willing to come and die the death that we deserved in order to have us. He was willing to go through hell itself, enduring the cross, despising its shame so that we didn't have to. Now, how do you, how do you really truly know that Jesus' promise of I'm with you is true? How do you know that? The Apostle Paul tells us if our faith is in Christ, we are not only declared uh, not guilty, but we're adopted into his family as sons. And if we're sons, we have the very spirit of Jesus in our hearts. Now, when he says, lo, behold, look, I'm with you even to the end of the age. I mean, how much more with you could he get than in your very heart? That should make his promise, that should make verse, verse 20 far more personal than just words on a page. His very spirit is in you and I if your faith is in Jesus. There's another commission in Joshua chapter 1 where God encourages Joshua with very similar words. Listen to these. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed or do, do not be discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In the Bible, if there's hard work ahead, God consistently, God always reminds his people of his presence with them in order to spur them on. So if they're kind of stagnant, I'm not sure I can do this, then what words will get you going? I'm with you. I'm with you. And probably the most powerful illustration of how the gospel creates a sense of courage and a willingness to endure is Romans 8, 31 to 38. And I... I think uh, Rob has those up here. And I think if we meditate long enough on this passage, we will grow in our willingness to carry out the Great Commission as well as our ability to endure. Um, And I'm going to read this, and then I have uh, two implications, and and we're going to be done in light of this, two implications. So let let me read this. You follow along. What then shall we say to these things, these things being all that he said beforehand, the wonderful Uh, news of the gospel and all that Christ has done. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, just repeat that to yourself throughout the rest of the day today and see what that does to your heart. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now listen to these last two. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor the rest of the verse, (laughs) Uh, nor anything else in all creation, I I just give it to you, uh, shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now if that doesn't give you confidence... I mean, if that, if that does not allow you to rest, I don't know what would. Now, there, there's, there's two implications uh, that I want to give here. The first one is this. It's called the Great Commission. Why is it important? I mean, have you ever thought about why it's called the Great Commission? 
um, to use <clears throat> kind of a military term for a second, someone who's commissioned is committed to the task by someone in authority over them. In fact, in the military, to commission something or someone is to authorize them or send them on a mission, right? And to give them an order that places them in a state of complete readiness for active duty. So what Jesus is doing to all who read this verse in faith, his disciples then and now, is he's commissioning us for active duty. So do you consider yourself part of a war effort? John Piper says, in wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. He says, prayer is like the walkie-talkie of the church on the battlefield of the world in the service of the word. It is not a domestic intercom to increase the temporal comforts of the saints. It malfunctions in the hands of soldiers who have gone AWOL. It is for those on active duty. Do you consider yourself part of a war effort? Because this commission, these words, are for a war effort. He's saying, I'm putting you on active duty with these words. Now, number two implication is, if we're in wartime and Jesus' universal mission demands going, it demands making disciples of all nations, then the church must recover a sense of martyrdom. And do you know what a martyr is? A martyr is a witness. The Greek word for witness is the word from which we get our word, our English word, martyr. And I don't mean the goal is martyrdom, but with the truth of Romans 8 implanted in our hearts, why fear it? It stands to reason from time to time, being a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ might lead you to martyrdom. What happened to the early church when persecution arose under the Roman Empire? Well, look at the pattern in the book of Acts. I mean, look at what happens after Stephen gets stoned in Acts 7. What happens? Then the church grew. An early church father named Tertullian said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is the seed from which the church begins to grow. And a real-life example of that is a group of uh, missionaries um, that many of you have heard of who went to evangelize the Alka Indians in South America. Uh, And they were Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and some other men who eventually were speared to death by the Alka Indians right there in the river with guns in their pockets, by the way. And what happened After that, well, the wives, the families of these men who were martyred came back to the Alcas, and Elizabeth Elliot tells the story of how over the period of building relationships and learning more of the Alca language, why did they do this? Why did they come to us? And eventually, they were able to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and today... Today, the Alka Indians are Christians. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see it over and over and over again. And I believe, personally, the only way many of the unreached of the world will ever hear is because 
of Christian martyrs. I've said it before, the only way we're going to beat Islam is to out-martyr them. Because rest assured, they're going to keep martyring themselves. Because they, they, they believe it. Or else they wouldn't. The question is, do we? And my prayer for us as we come to the table this morning is, what better food, what more, what more of, a, of a picture do you want of God saying, of Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go as I, as I have left you an example. As, as, as the love that I have shown for you is in that I'm willing to lay down my life for my friends. If that begins to take hold of your heart, if you come and you take his body broken, his blood shed, that grips your heart. Then you'll go out. You'll lay down your life for your friends and even for your enemies as Jesus did for his. So let's pray for the courage uh, and the strength to do that in light of what we've seen here. Uh, And as we come to the table, I invite Terry and uh, everybody back up. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do say to you, Uh, that we believe what you have said about your authority, that we believe what you have said about being with us even to the end of the age, but we also say help our unbelief. Um, Make us courageous uh, as we increasingly look, increasingly meditate on what it is that you have done and that you would come you would come and die the death that we deserved and, and, and take the punishment that was ours so that we in turn might have life, so that we in turn might have the confidence to know we are sons, we are heirs. Everything that is yours is ours. And help us to take that promise and from that promise be willing to, as we've already sung in various forms this morning, all the stuff that mattered to us, all the stuff that was dearest to us before, to count it as rubbish, that we might know you, Lord Jesus, in the power of your resurrection, and share in the fellowship of your sufferings. Do that, we pray, that we as Redeemer, we as this church, uh, might lay down our lives for Winter Haven and to the uttermost parts of the earth. For your glory, we pray, in Christ's name. just want to give you a, a warning, uh, two warnings here as we come to the, the table. Uh, the first is, uh, we do this every month, this is not the, the table of uh, Redeemer. Church of the Redeemer is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would remind you uh, and caution you that if your faith and your hope are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that you refrain Uh, Because the scriptures tell us that if you come without discerning, without being able to make sense of the body broken and the blood shed, uh, that you can eat and drink judgment on yourself. So that's a very serious thing. I just would caution you to take that seriously. The other thing is this is a, a table of peace. It's a table of reconciliation. And so if there are relationships or a relationship in your life where there is not peace, where where you need to maybe pursue reconciliation, I would ask that you go and and take care of that and come back next month. We'll be back here, first Sunday of June, to celebrate this uh, together. Uh, Logistically, 
Everyone, if you would, please come to the middle, and we'll have some servers up here with uh, four stations. Come and uh, take a piece of bread and one of the cups. Return to your seat and outside here, and uh, when everybody's received, we'll take it together, okay? Um, to rehearse once again with you the, the great news of what's been done here at this table. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup, and again, when he had given thanks, he he took it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said to them, drink this, all of it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And so, he comes to us this morning, and he says, this is my body in the place of your body. This is my blood in the place of your blood. Uh, Take and eat, take and drink, and allow me to feed you. Come feed on me, that that you might abide in me, and I in you. Uh, I'd invite our our servers to come up, uh, and as they do, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, come, we pray, and serve us. Come, we pray, and be present with us. Uh, Come, we pray, that we might feed on you, uh, that we might be changed into your image, and that as we're changed into your image, uh, we might go from here uh, and move out uh, in faith to carry out the work you've given to us. Uh, In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Amen. Uh, In light of uh, what we've heard, I I do want to make, in the back of the worship folder, there's a note about Nicaragua, mandatory meeting uh, right after worship. Uh, instead of, of doing that, I know people going here, there, and everywhere, please, in the next uh, 24 hours, today or tomorrow, if you're serious about doing that trip, or somebody's over there and you know they're serious, please have them email me uh, it, it, as soon as they can. Just give me a number, myself, my wife, just myself, whatever it might be, so that I can get a head count, because I need to see if we can qualify for a group rate uh, with our airline tickets, and we need to kind of get rolling on that. So please uh, please do take care of that the next day or so, uh, if you can. Just email me. My email is on the back of the worship folder. Um, as we've just sung, uh, know you must become what you want to save. And when you and I forget that all we are is a beggar trying to tell other beggars where we found some bread, and it's the best bread they'll ever get. When we forget that, Uh, we forget our job. Uh, But to the extent that we remember that, and we remember what has been done for us, we will go and take to the world this love and hope and faith. So uh, as you go, this is a promise, this benediction, that he goes with you uh, to help you, to equip you to accomplish that. So receive it. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.